I know this place. Um, I have family in Havelock who live about a K down the road from here. It's a beautiful place. And you may have seen during the week that um, apple grower saying, I used to have apple trees here. So not only is the fruit gone, but the whole trees have been washed away. And you feel for them. You know, their livelihood, what they've worked for, and all of that. I also have a friend who's the pastor of Flaxmere Baptist, which is, um, I don't know, 25 k's away from Havelock. Havelock's quite a well-heeled sort of a part of the bay. Flaxmere is definitely not. Flaxmere is where the mongrel mob were born back in the 70s. Um, some of these guys in this gang were up on a charge and the judge looked at them and said, you're all just a pack of mongrels. And so they grabbed that as their identity. Flaxmere is their town. And my mate Andrew, I trained with him. He was an engineer and he's been there, I think, getting towards 15 years now and I think he'll be there forever. And there's him and a bunch of perhaps, I don't know, 25 or 30 Baptists, and they are doing their bit in that community, and it's beautiful. I spent a week there a few years ago, and to hear the niece of the local mongrel mob president and this old Baptist lady giving each other stick was just delightful. They have an op shop, and they have a food bank. And a few years ago, a chap came back after getting his food parcel and said, there's something wrong with this pasta. And they, and they said, what's wrong with it? And he says, it's too hard, it's crunchy. So they decided, well, perhaps we should have cooking classes. And so they do. And I went to the service there. And the kids giving their... Um, doing their memory verses in the, ser in the service were gang kids. You're not going to grow a, a middle-class church in that way, but it's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. So if you would like to make a donation to that, that we could pass on to Andrew to help in his community, please just put something in the church account and stick um, Hawke's Bay by it, or, or Gabriel, perhaps, and we will pass it on to him. But I also did want to say, too, about the um, fundraising for Easter camp. We got some hundreds of dollars for our kids to go, so thank you so much for those people who remembered them. That was, the youth group are blown away by your support. Just superb. Okay. Well, when we consider the cross, we often think a lot about the death of Jesus, understandable, as it's the means of his death. But curiously, there was a lot of living and a lot of life going on on the cross that day. And I hope we're going to be able to bring that out in this lead up to Easter this year. Each week we'll be speaking about something else 
that Jesus said while he was on the cross. And on that last day of his life, while he was living his last, as he faced a grisly, painful, shameful death, this is what Luke tells us happened. And this is, I'm reading from Luke uh, chapter 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, well, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. So soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, well, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Well, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I'll tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And it's that last phrase that we're talking about today. Now, let's try and imagine this scene from the point of view of that second thief. And we'll call him Jacob. Well, I grew up in Jerusalem with my mum. She had been married before I came along, but was divorced by her husband because she hadn't given him an heir. There was no one in the family around to take her in, so she eked out a living as a sort of a temporary servant. And when she was desperate, she sold herself. My father was one of her clients, so I never met him. I've been a thief all my life, and quite a good one, or so I thought until recently. Five days ago, I came across this drunk centurion late at night, and as I delicately lifted, and lifted up his purse, I could feel it sitting nicely and heavy in my hand until... I felt the unmistakable jab of a sword in my back. There was another centurion there who I hadn't seen, and he had me cold. They frog-marched me back to the barracks and beat me until I passed out. They were less than impressed that I would steal from one of their own. When I came round, I was lying on the floors of a cell with my whole body just screaming with pain. I'd been beaten before by the temple guards, but never like this. And I thought they might be done with me. But no one came to let me go. And this was not a good sign. 
couple of days later, I was dragged before the governor, who sentenced me to death in about 30 seconds without bothering to look at me. I was obviously of no account to him. But it seems that I am am to be an example to the hundreds of other desperate thieves who work Jerusalem. Why my death will matter to them, I do not know. We steal because if we don't steal, we starve. But as they say, you do the crime, so you do the time. I knew the risks, we all do. I should have been more careful that night. They got me, so I can't complain, and I don't. Now David, the man in the next cell, is also sentenced to death. He's a thief too, we we know each other a bit. Come Friday morning, David and I are dragged from our cells and given crosses to carry. I shudder when I see mine because I know what's coming. Many's the time I have profitably worked a distracted crowd watching a crucifixion. Now there's a third guy with us who looks in really bad shape. He was whipped this morning so he can barely walk, let alone manage a cross. On the way, the Romans rope in some other guy to carry it for him. Man, I wish they'd do that for me. I've seen this guy before. He's some sort of rabbi, but not the usual sort, and and by that I mean he's not stuck up. Some of my friends have eaten with him, while other rabbis would cross the lane to avoid the likes of us. And if they did come into contact with us, if we did touch them, well, they'd spend the next few weeks trying to rub the stink of us off them, the uncleanness. But this man, Jesus, he wasn't like that. He was different in a good way, a man of the people, a true man of God, I think. Well, I must have passed out when the nails went into my wrists. It was like my body could not face what was happening to me. And sometime later, I woke into a bad dream the living nightmare that we call crucifixion. Lots of jeering voices, but oddly, they weren't directed at me. They were directed at this Jesus. All the great and the good were there, the priests and all that lot and their finery, like a procession of peacocks. I guess they wanted to be sure that he was dead and gone. I think that he'd rattled them. And they were letting him know that he was nothing. Then Jesus said the most amazing thing. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. To be honest, I didn't get that, because it looked to me like they knew exactly what they were doing. But here he was, praying for them, praying for their forgiveness, that God would not punish them for this travesty. They weren't sorry, and they weren't stopping. In fact, they were rubbing his face in it. But he was forgiving. Then David starts getting into him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us, he said. And it just, to me, it seems so wrong. Here is this man of God being mocked by a dying thief. We were getting what we always were going to receive someday. But this was a good rabbi who cared about the likes of us. And he's getting executed too. 
Don't you fear God? I said to David. I didn't want to be part of boiling the innocent and after all we were going to be facing God quite soon, like that afternoon soon. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this guy, he's done nothing wrong. To me, David and I had enough sins on our conscience without adding more on our last day on earth. And then I had another little moment, and it was this. This man is the Christ, and he would pray to God to forgive the Romans and the priests and all those who are killing him so unjustly and so cruelly. Maybe there's a little bit of room for me. After all, I thought, at heart, I'm no worse than any of them. Maybe God is not the distant, harsh, law enforcer, rule-bound being that he's always seemed to be. And from the way he prayed, this Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Maybe God cares just a little bit about Jacob, the thief. So I said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to me those extraordinary words, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, I think it's the ultimate in deathbed confessions. Jacob finds hope in the most hopeless situation, seeing Jesus praying for his oppressors. David, on the other hand, has no hope. To him, if you were the Christ, well, of course, you've got the power to get down off the cross and you use it to save yourself. David gets a little bit of satisfaction from finding someone slightly more wretched than himself and putting the boot in. He's like the concentration camp inmate given power over his fellows who beats them worse than the Nazi guards. Jesus praying for those who are killing him must have seemed absurd to David, but doesn't to Jacob. See, Jacob recognises his own sinfulness, his own fallen humanity, and he accepts it, and he gets it. He knows he deserves punishment, and he doesn't buck against it, but in asking for Jesus' mercy, he shows faith, just a little bit, that death might not be the end, that Jesus might triumph, through death. And at that moment, he's shown more faith in Jesus than 11 of his disciples are in hiding. His is a faith born out of desperation. And here we have, even at the end of his life, Jesus still leading others into the way of salvation. He led Jacob into a new life, albeit quite briefly which I suspect was not quite what Jacob was looking for. See, his plea was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's looking ahead to some point after his death when the day of the Lord would take place, and on that day, divine rule would break into the world. And in that respect, Jacob has the same worldview as the chief priest and the Jewish people of his time. His whole orientation is towards the future not the present. And you can understand it. 
All he has left of his life are a few short hours filled with torment, pain, and shame. But Jesus answers her, answered him, Today you will be with me in paradise. And the use of that word today, as Gavin pointed out to me during the week, is curious. Jesus is orientated to the present, even though he knows that both he and Jacob will die that day. Now, if you've grown up within the uh, evangelical Bible-believing Christian faith, you will have been extensively and rightly schooled in the redemptive power, the saving power of what Jesus did on the cross. He conquered Satan and the all-consuming power that is sin, that it has over humanity and indeed all creation. Very true. But what we often miss is that Jesus' life was redemptive, was saving as well. And we see this throughout Luke's gospel, where this passage that I'm talking about is drawn from. The start of his ministry, in Luke 4, I think it is, he went to the synagogue at Nazareth, and Jesus, he stood up to read. And he grabbed the scroll, scroll of the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him, unrolling it. He found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying that salvation was a present reality for those who followed him that day. Then again in Luke 5, in response to those very resourceful and faithful men who lowered their paralytic friend through a hole in the roof to the place where Jesus was teaching, he said, your sins will be forgiven? No. He said, your sins are forgiven. Not they will be forgiven when I'm dead, they're forgiven now, present, not future. Likewise, in Luke 17, in response to a question from a Pharisee of when the kingdom would come, he replied, it's among you. In other words, it's here now, you just can't see it. I could give many examples, but I trust the point as apparent. Jesus' whole time on earth, his whole life was redemptive, was saving, not just that day on the cross. So to Jesus, God's kingdom was a present reality as well as a future hope. It was now, but not yet. Now it's been initiated, but its fullness hasn't come yet. The fullness is off in the future. The kingdom is today and tomorrow. Not like the Jews of that time believed, completely tomorrow. Jesus used the word paradise here, not kingdom or salvation, but I, I think they mean the same thing. Paradise, they imagined, was a sort of a walled garden at the palace, and you could go and have a chat to the king. It was a lovely little image 
of um, a little bit like the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. It's fellowship, it's intimacy with God. The key feature is that the person in paradise is in the presence of the Lord. It seems to me that for those few painful hours on that Good Friday after his confession of faith in Jesus, Jacob was in paradise because he was living in the presence of his Lord. Jesus has begun the work of saving Jacob, even in the mutual pain that they were in paradise together on that awful God-forsaken afternoon. Jesus had already come into his kingdom, not in all of its fullness, not with all the bells and whistles yet, but in his life, the kingdom had broken into the world and his newfound baby follower, Jacob the thief. And I think it's the same for us. The kingdom or paradise or whatever you want to call it is now, but not yet. It started, but we are not yet experiencing its fullness. We have glimpses and experiences that show this. When I, when I sense God's heart or mind in a situation, when a, a prayer appears to be answered, when I sense the Spirit move in some way, these are some examples of the signs that God's kingdom is here now, that we are living in paradise. Now, I remember when I'd been a Christian for about a week, and I was one of these people who turned on a 10-cent piece. I um, rolled over one night and prayed to um, receive the Lord. But there was no joy. I was in complete turmoil. I remember trying to pray, and it lasted in about 30 seconds until I felt so self-conscious. Why are you talking to yourself? There's no one there. I came across C.S. Lewis, who described himself as the most unhappy convert in Christendom, and I thought, this man I understand, because that was me. Well, the next Saturday... I was sitting in the rugby changing room before the game and I briefly prayed that my rugby team would win and that I would play well. And as soon as I prayed that prayer, I felt silly and I stopped. Now, a bit of context. My rugby team was a disaster. We often started our game with 13 or 14 players instead of the regulation 15. By the time the 15th player ran onto the field 20 minutes in, we were typically two or three tries down and that was the game. I thought it likely that our team was going to fold. We hadn't won a game, and it was depressing. Well, that day, we won handsomely, and I played probably the best game of rugby I've ever played. Got the player of the day. And as I walked off that rugby field, I felt my very first moment of Christian joy, because I remembered that I had prayed. This. Jesus was real, he was with me, and he cared for me, even about something as inconsequential as a rugby game. It was my first experience of the joy of paradise, which is in Glen Eden in Auckland. But paradise was actually where I had been ever since I had first painfully, reluctantly confessed Jesus as my Lord even though I did not feel great at that time. I was still in paradise a few years later when my mum died. 
later when I went through some really lonely and tough periods in my life, including depression. It was paradise, not because it was all joyful, big smiles, but because Jesus walked those valleys with me. He was there, even though at times I couldn't sense his presence at all. Jesus is with you in your pain, which is one of the messages of the cross. He does not usually intervene to put things right. He didn't spare Jacob the pain of his cross, but he was there with him. Jesus is with you when it feels like your life is a mess, whether it's due to addiction, mental illness, relationship breakdown, grief, loss, illness, chronic pain, whatever. You are still in paradise, even if it feels like the bottom has fallen out of your world. When your world feels like hell. And Jesus is also with you in your moments of joy when it really does feel like heaven has come to earth just for a brief moment. Jesus' word to Jacob is also a word to us. Today, he is with us in paradise. Amen. Could the musos please come back?